All right, well, amen. Let's give applause for our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful worship here, as always, here at Springboro Baptist Church. And those who are here, maybe you're new and are you're watching online for the first time, I'm Pastor Lucas Cunningham. And man, we are glad that you are here. And uh, I think today is our last day of really cold weather for in the short term. I never thought I'd look forward to 40 degrees so much in my life. And so that should happen in the next day or two. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're starting a new series on the book of Ephesians. One of my, probably my favorite epistle, one of my favorite New Testament books. And it is a wonderful, wonderful book here and uh, that we get to read. Let's all stand together as we start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7 here this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us or predestined us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do. He, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Father, thank you for your word. God, we are thankful that um, Lord, that we are not here by mistake, that you have saved us, and that, God, that, that you are not done with us, that you are making us more and more like your son, Jesus. And none of us look in the mirror and see a finished work, but you're not done, and you're not satisfied. As a loving father that guides his children, you guide us through your spirit May we let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. Bless this time together that we're having. May your word speak to us, and may we be ready to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Kind of give you a little bit of a, an introduction here, a background here with the, uh, the book of Ephesians. It is a book that is given to us that was written to encourage not just the church in Ephesus, but to surrounding churches of that day. And it continues to encourage us today. And it was written in a time that um, was very anti-Christian. It was very pagan. It was, it was not, uh, we, we like to maybe even today look at our world around us and our country and go, man, we're just falling far and far farther away. We're getting farther away from the Lord. And while I would agree with you, this is nothing compared to Ephesus. I mean, it is ultra, ultra pagan. And, um, but God was on the move. And so 
we see here in the book of Ephesians, it's about living out the gospel as well. And so how to live as Christians and about who we are in Christ. And this is written to a new church in this difficult city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. At one point in time, not necessarily when this was written, but it ended up with having one of the largest libraries in the world, the largest temple in the world. It was a temple of the goddess Diana, or also known as Artemis. And uh, prostitution was rampant. And here's the thing with prostitution of, during that day. It was considered part of their worship. It was part of their worship at the temple. And so sin was at the very heart of Ephesus. The temple, the remnants are still there in Turkey today. In fact, it's known as one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple um, in that area, surrounded by the area, was a population of about a half million people. They had major roads. Roads, interesting enough, we, um, our roads are made out of some, our driveways made out of concrete. Our roads are a mixture of what oil and tar and rock to make our blacktop in which we drive on. And if you were to go to the main roads there in Ephesus, you were not on concrete, you were not on stone or gravel, I should say, and you definitely were, you were not on blacktop, you were on marble. Ephesus was very, very wealthy. And in fact, um, it was the, the bank there was kind of a hub for the Roman Empire before uh, the, the wealth was transported to Rome. It had it going on. In fact, when Cleopatra and Mark Anthony visited Ephesus, it said that, and I don't recommend cleaning your marble this way, okay, but they cleaned the marble roads not with water, but with fine wine. They were ultra wealthy. And that is what Paul is doing with. And on his third missionary journey, he goes and God wants to plant a church. He wants to plant a church um, there in Ephesus. And it was a perfect spot to start a church. It was a, Ephesus really kind of was the dividing line between the West and the East. And so, uh, Paul visited Ephesus on a second missionary journey. I think I said his third, but second missionary journey. And he was headed to Jerusalem for a feast, and he stopped at the local synagogue for the Jewish people. And what Paul would do when he was starting churches, he oftentimes would go to the synagogue because they knew the Old Testament. They had a foundation, right? He had someone to work with, and he would go, and that's who he would witness to first. And many would come to faith, and many churches were started that way. And, and, and so Paul had spent an overall time of around three years. He loved, he loved this church in Ephesus. He really did. And um, during his third missionary journey there, it became the center of a spiritual awakening that embraced the whole area. I mean, revival had broken out. Now, while there was excitement, some of the locals didn't exactly like it. Now, why would locals not like it? 
Um, I mean, there's some locals that they may be an atheist. They may be serving their own God. They may be, well, that's exciting for you. You're serving your own God. But um, when you end up affecting people's money, they suddenly care about your God when it affects their pocketbook. And that's what was happening in this situation. Now, we're going to stay here mostly in, in the book of Ephesians, but I want you to turn over to the book of Acts. We get a little more background here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, of this revival that was going on in the situation. And while I'm going to paraphrase some of it, I do want us to read a part of it as well. And so Acts chapter 19 and verse 23, um, we see that some of the Jews turned hostile towards Paul, wherever he went really, but Paul just kept trucking along. He kept going, and he, it, God is using him in a mighty way to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, and so God is moving here in Ephesus. God is having some special miracles going on in some special ways, and um, we see in verse 23, we see this riot in Ephesus and says about that time serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way so uh, first off we're called Christians not because they had a meeting in the early church and had a holy huddle and made a committee and said hey you know what we need a name so we need to get a committee and they probably were Baptist anyway because that's what Baptists do they make committees and, and so they end up having a committee and going you know what we should call ourselves Christians yes all in favor say aye aye and then that's what they that's not what they did who named us Christians? The world. Why? Because we followed Christ. And because we represented Christ, they go, they are Christians. But before they were named, you know what they were called? The way. Because Jesus is the way. Make no bones about it. When you call yourself the way, it gets people's attention real quick. In fact, um, Make no mistake, Jesus is still the way. It's not your good works. It's not your good looks. It's not your money. It's not Islam. It's not Mormonism. You could go on down the line. Jesus is the way, period. Don't get mad at me for saying it. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and life. That's where they got it from. And this is not the only instance where they say that uh, call themselves the way. And Jesus is the way. Now what gives him the right to, to say that they are following the way? Well, he rose again. And that right there is enough. When you conquer death, when you conquer death, and you say you're going to conquer death, you say you're going to die, and three days later you come out of the grave alive, you are the way. And Jesus, he is the way. And so it began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. And he kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with the others employed in similar trades, and addressed them uh, as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. Not just jobs, but wealth. But as you've seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods, so they had these silver handmade gods of, of Artemis in their homes so they could worship it in a more easier way. Easier way. And, um, and so he continues. 
And, and he's done this, not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire providence, the known parts of Asia. And so, of course, I'm not talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence. Now, Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. So Artemis is there, this huge statue that they worshipped. I mean, they had prostitution was a worship towards Artemis. I mean, it was right there in Ephesus. It was known. So they're realizing, uh uh-oh, this Paul guy spreading the news about Jesus concerning the way he's hurting our pocketbook. We're not selling as many of these small silver ornaments to people, and not just in our own, own city here, but throughout our whole known region. They were making bank. They were making a ton of money, and now they're losing money. And now they're not happy when they start to lose money, and they're angry. They're not happy. And so at this, it says in verse 28, their anger, anger boiled. They were hot. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater. This amphitheater held about, they believe, close to 25,000 people. Give you an idea, the U.S. Bank Arena there in Cincinnati holds 19,000. There's more in this amphitheater than what you could hold at U.S. Bank Arena. They rushed to it. It used to be called U.S. Bank Arena. It's called something else different now. I can't remember. Showing my age, right? U.S. Bank Arena. It was that for a long time. Most of your basketball arenas, I think the Pacers basketball arena holds like 22,000. If you've been in there and you look up and you're like, man, this thing is tall. I can't believe how big it is. This is bigger than that. It's huge. It is a huge amphitheater that they had for music, that they had for plays, and they had for, obviously, for meetings against guys who were affecting their trade. And so some were confused about why they were there. And so, and so great Artemis so soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Articus, and, and who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him go in. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life entering the amphitheater. And inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. And everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. And the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. And he motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and they, keep it, they kept it up for two hours. This is what they said for two hours. I mean, 25,000 people, and if you've been to a game where they're all shouting the same thing, there's an energy to it. There's an excitement to it. And you can hear it. Not only can you hear it, you can feel it. You can feel it. And though I've never played basketball in front of such a crowd like that, but in our little school gymnasium there in Bethel, we'd play some games, and it was so loud you had to yell to the person next to you, to your teammate, to talk to them. 
And I would imagine it was the same way. As they were yelling, this is what they were yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Two hours. And at last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of, of, of Ephesus. Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis who fell down to us from heaven. And since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. And you have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple, and you have not spoken, they have not spoken against our goddess. And if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts and the sessions officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about the other matters, they can be settled in the legal assembly. I'm afraid that we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government. And since there is no cause for all this commotion, and if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. You dismiss them. They dispersed. Now, how would you like to be a church planner in Ephesus? Paul didn't care. Paul, his name was once Saul, named after one of the most, well, the first king of Israel, who was also kind of a know it all, very boastful, hard headed, didn't listen. So much that God even, it says that God relented or he regretted basically that he even made Saul king. The same Saul that had a son named Jonathan who was best friends with David. And God was going to use, uh, and, and use David to be the next king. And, and multiple times Saul tried to kill David. Saul was a Roman citizen yet a Jew. Now, that was not common. Saul, or Paul, he knew three different languages. He was a very educated man. And you can read more about it in other passages, I think, in the book of Galatians, where Paul explains a little bit more of his background. But more than likely, Paul was a Roman citizen due to the fact that his father worked for the Roman government of some sort and had some influence. And you could be a Roman citizen one of two ways. You either purchased it, which is very expensive and uncommon, or two, you were born as a Roman citizen. Paul had some of the best education. Paul knew the Old Testament. Paul had great zeal for God, but it was misplaced. In fact, Paul, when he was Saul, held the coats, the coats of the men who stoned the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and he watched. He was capturing Christians, thinking he was doing a work for God until, until he had that uh, vision and, you know, Jesus confronted him, and, and God made him do a U-turn. God chose him. God used him in a very, very special way. Paul's attitude was, for me to die is gain, and for me to live is Christ. That was his attitude. He was stoned multiple times. 
before he was saved, he, it's believed that he was not just a Pharisee, but also a Sadducee, and that was very uncommon as well. In fact, we think it may be the only instance of only time that ever happened. We don't know that for certain. If it, was the, if it wasn't the only time, it was very rare. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't, they didn't get along. Or excuse me, on the, uh, he, he served on the council of the Sanhedrin. They, they didn't always, that was very uncommon for that to happen. And yet, it happened to Paul. Now Paul could have bragged about his past. He could have bragged about who he was. But notice how he starts his letter off here to the church in Ephesus. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. Saul means great. Paul means little. And Paul, who once had the best of the best teachers, who had the best citizenship, who knew the best rulers, people of influence, now changed his name to Paul, showing he is humble, showing that he's a servant of the Most High God. Some of your different translations will say, I'm writing to God's saints or saints in Ephesus. Now the word saint, if you're not familiar with the Bible, and you were to take it just what saint means today, we think of saints as people who were really good people and have already passed away. In fact, the Catholic Church, to be a saint in the Catholic Church, you need to have two confirmed miracles, and they'll make you a saint. But biblically, that's not actually what a saint is. I'm a saint. A preacher, you're not that special. Well, neither are you, but many, all of you are saints, as far as I know. A saint is God's holy people who have been redeemed, who have been saved. And so I haven't done any miracles. I will never be a saint in the Catholic Church. All right? But, but we together, we are God's holy people. We are saints. That's what a saint is biblically, is what we see. And so going back to the situation here in Ephesus, they've turned, but God's church keeps growing. It keeps going. And so Paul is writing them out of love. He invested a lot of time there in the church in Ephesus, and he wanted to show how much he cared for them. He wanted to encourage them. He loved, he loved all of the churches that he planted, but he really, he really loved his church in Ephesus. And so he's talking to the Christians here in Ephesus, and he loves them. And so he says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And so he continues in verse 3, and we get into some words here that in sections of this passage are not easy in fact, there are many Christians who will disagree on this. And maybe you're here or you're listening and you're like, well, I don't exactly agree with the preacher this morning um, on the way he views uh, a couple of these terms. Or 
really, really philosophy on some of these terms. And uh, this has been a disagreement among Christians for a long time when it comes to these words of being chosen, to election, to predestination. And, um, and, and so with some of this, we, we need to have some understanding with one another and also realize that we, as believers, may not always agree on every single thing in the Bible. We must agree on the gospel, no question. We may have some different views. And I know just from talking to some of you, you this morning and knowing some of you, you're going to have maybe a different view than I do and, um, on some of this. And uh, uh, that's okay. We can still be brothers and sisters in Christ and agree to disagree. And you realize you're not wrong, that you're wrong and I'm right. And it's okay. Like, I get it. My wife doesn't agree with me on everything. I know that's a surprise. But we still love each other. In verse 3, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. It's important to remember, church. We can have some different, diff- we have some differences. <clears throat> Probably right now, there are some of us that are all, we, we believe in eternal security. Some would call that once saved, always saved. And there's some of you right now, you're like, I don't really hold to that. There's some, we may have different views on some, even some different spiritual gifts that were very clear in the early church from speaking in tongues, a special knowledge, and we may have some differences on that. But what we must focus it in on is this, is that we are united in Christ. Amen? We're united in Christ. And we must remember that. You know, we, we have um, Bengals fans here, we have Browns fans here, we have... Uh, people who are they're close to backsliding as Steelers fans are here. <laughs> but we're united in Christ. Amen. We're united. We have Michigan fans. We have Ohio. We could keep going on and on, but we're united in Christ. And that, at the end of the day, is what truly matters. And even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. In Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do. And, he, and it gave him great pleasure. And so we praise God for the glorious grace as he poured out on us who belong to his dear son. And so... He is so rich in kindness and in grace. So let's go back here a little bit and really focus in on verse 3, 4, and 5. And we may not get completely through this message, and that's okay. We'll always continue it and add to it um, next week. But I want us to first see is this, is that the Father has blessed us. And it is the will of God to bless us, and that is where Paul begins. He directs our attention to, <clears throat> to the source of our blessings. The supreme revelation of God in the Bible is that he is our father. Not just a father, but our father. And I love looking back on Psalms 23, in which we did a series on that, where it says, my shepherd. And it's the same with God, our father. 
He is our Father. He is my shepherd. And we really do not see God mentioned as Father until the New Testament. Until with really Jesus really um, focusing in on and calling God his Father. Because he was. And in fact, the first recorded words of this truth that we see is, is in Luke 2.49 from Jesus. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And in the greatest of Christ's parables, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the word father occurs a dozen times. The name the name was on the Lord's lips as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane at night before his crucifixion. And as he hung on the cross, as he, was, he, as, as he greeted a loved one uh, on the resurrection morning, as he taught his disciples to pray, God is our Father. And it's a wonderful truth. Not everyone looks at God as their father. Maybe you had a father that was abusive. Maybe you had a father that simply wasn't there. Maybe you had a father who was more of a, like a general in the army. And the thought of God as your father either feels distance, distant. It may even feel like you don't even like that term because of what your earthly father has done or, or, or how he has treated you. And while I feel saddened, um, and even if you have a good father, you have a father that's not perfect. And that's why it's important that we study Scripture and realize that we have a perfect heavenly father that loves us, who is sovereign, that is for us, not against us, that provides for our needs. He even gives us things that we want. He gives us good gifts. He knows what is best for us. Sovereign means that God is in complete control. And while I'm not going to completely get into this, though we're going to touch on some of it, that's kind of the, uh, probably a major discussion, is between God's sovereignty and man's free will. And so there's some Christians who believe we do not have free will. And I disagree with that. Do I believe God is sovereign? Absolutely. Do I believe God has given mankind free will? Absolutely. And theologians and pastors have been in that discussion for a long, long time. And I believe that God and His sovereignty, in His sovereignty, has given us free will. And that really could be a message within and of itself. You see, the problem when you end up focusing on just God's sovereignty and you don't believe God has given us free will is many end up holding to what we call fatalism. Well, what does it matter anyway? God has just pre-planned everything. We're just robots, just kind of programmed by God, and, and, and we're just What's going to happen is going to happen. It doesn't matter what I do, what I say, what I think. If I do good, if I do bad, it doesn't even really matter. Fatalism. And some kind of get in that camp. And to me, it would be a miserable place 
to live, to believe in such things. Fatalism. But yet, because God is our Father, and He is sovereign, and I think that line between God's sovereignty and man's free will is something we cannot understand, that no one can really put their finger on completely, and, and because it's outside of our time and space, this dimension in which we understand. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with serving and worshiping God as my Father, and He is my Father, that I, I worship God who I do not completely understand. Because you know what? If you completely understood everything about God, He would not be God. In fact, He would not be worth worshiping. And I know that His ways is above our, our ways. And that even His if there is anything foolish in God, it's so far above our wisdom that we can't even reach it. We cannot achieve it. So first and foremost, knowing that he is our father should make you feel loved. It should make you feel valued. And it should make you realize that your life does matter. And that as we follow him and we love God, that, that because of he, he loves us so much, if we are seeking his will in our lives and we're about to do something stupid, you ever almost done something stupid? Don't have to raise your hand all at once. We've all done something stupid. You've seen that sign before. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? Sometimes bad things happen to people because you're, well, you were being stupid. That's basically what happened, happened in, your, in that situation. But I believe that as God, as he sees us living our lives and we are seeking his will, we're worshiping him, that because of how much he loves us in his sovereignty and wanting us as we're seeking his will, he will guide us and direct us and keep us from certain situations. Because I'm thankful. I've seen God. He looks out for, it seems like, for two people, right? People who worship him, and they may, in their ignorance, be going down a path. They don't even realize what's going on, and he looks out for them. It seems that God looks out for uh, uh, people who are ignorant, and at times, it seems, somehow, he looks out for drunk people, is what I've seen in life, and in our ignorance, And that should bring us comfort, knowing that he loves us. You see, the Father chose us. Notice verse 4. Verse 4, even before the wor- he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy, without fault in his eyes. There is a mystery here that centers in on the fact that we are finite and God is, God is infinite. We are creatures of time. God is not. He's eternal. We express our mode of being in three um, senses of time. I I was, I am, and I will be. God expresses it differently. He is eternally present. 
And we see this in Scripture where he says, I am, I am, I am. Jesus did not say before Abraham, I was. No, he said, I am. Jesus said, I am. He was claiming eternity of being in coexistence with the Father. And his enemies considered this statement blasphemous. And so in John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. And it said, they took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus is like, why? And they're like, hey, for a good work, we're not going to stone you. But for making yourself equal with God, we're going to stone you. Wasn't the first time. And Jesus escaped through the crowd because he was making himself equal with God. You see, we are hindered in experience and understanding by this body, this limited nature in which we have. And so we live moment by moment. And if you think about it, I mean, the past was just a couple seconds ago and is gone. It's fleeting. God doesn't live that way. God made time. He invented time. He's outside of time. You see, the future lies before us, and we cannot experience it until it touches us in a fleeting moment. In God's mind, however, the past, present, and future are swallowed up in an all-embracing present. Now, really think about that. You cannot grasp that. We can't. Our minds cannot wrap our minds around that. And so when we read that we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, we must realize that the Holy Spirit has stated the issue from our perspective. Our limited perspective. And since God, since God lives in the present tense, there is to him no time different between the moment he chose me and the moment I chose him. And how the great preacher, theologian John Phillips put it, he said the perception of time difference is ours alone. And from the standpoint of God's eternal present tense, both acts are simultaneous. That him choosing us, and I believe, as you read through Scripture, that we see that, that God's grace and salvation clearly can be rejected. And that we have a choice whether to accept the gospel or to reject the gospel. That the choosing, because God, it looks at time, I believe, almost as a scroll. He sees it at the beginning. He sees it at the end. He is not limited by time and space. That the choosing of him choosing us and us choosing him is at the same time. You may say, preacher, I disagree with you. That's fine. But I believe John Phillips, in his commentary, gives a helpful picture of what happens during that time. See, he chose us to be holy without fault in his eyes. It's really a beautiful thing when you think about it. Colossians mentions how God takes our sin and nails it to the cross. And Jesus, as he bled and died on the cross, he died for all the past sins because the Old Testament saints were waiting for the Messiah who would come, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, and he was just that. He died for all the past sins, the present sins, and all the future sins. He died for them all. I was saved when I was seven years old. I have sinned more as a Christian than a non-Christian. Seven. How old am I? 
37 years. 37 years I've been a Christian. I've sinned more. Some of you are just like that as well. And here's the beautiful picture of the cross, what God does for us. At age seven, it was like God took my filthy rags of sin, or we'll say filthy robe or garment. He picked it up off of me, took it off, took it over to the cross, and nailed it to the cross, showing Satan and his demons, this one right here is mine. Showing the forgiveness has been made. Not because I was a good seven-year-old, but I was a saved seven-year-old who came to faith and God showed grace and mercy to. And imagine, this is not in the Bible, but it kind of gives us a little bit of a, a picture for us, that when we accept Christ, that Jesus comes over, takes off his robe of righteousness, which is pure. Jesus never sinned. He never had a mark on his robe, a perfect, white, beautiful robe. He takes it, and it says Jesus on the back of it, because Jesus puts his names on all of his robes, and he puts it around me, showing that I have been born again, that I have been justified, justification. The sin is taken off of me. Now, I still sin. As a Christian, we don't try to sin, but we sin. We have this flesh. It does stupid things from time to time. We all sin. We do dumb things. And, and God is he, he's trying to, uh, making us more and more like Christ. And so is justification. So my sin continues to be paid for on the cross. And here I am dressed in robes, a robe of white because I'm justified in God's sight. He sees his son. He sees I've been forgiven. My sin, my robe is on the cross. It continues to be blackened from sin, it, but it is forgiven. And there's this beautiful word called sanctified or sanctification in the Bible. It means to be set apart for God. And this is where we end up getting to this word predestination. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen it. And in fact, in verse 5, it reads a little different in the NLT, but in the New King James and ESV, it reads very similar. And it reads like this in verse 5. It says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined. Anytime you see this word predestined, it involves or is pointed towards a believer. And so what is God doing in our lives as believers when it comes to predestination? Now some, some will look at this this way. They will look at, well, God must have predestined some from, for hell you know, and, and some for heaven. I do not hold to that. You may hold to that. There may be some who believe that here. There's, there's some friends I have that hold to that. I disagree with them. And I believe it can really mess people up. I think, well, God must have just had me be born to die and go to hell. But when you end up watching and studying this word predestined, 
it always has to deal in reference to a believer. And in fact, a very well-known passage that you probably have said or heard before um, is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'm skipping around here just a little bit. I skipped a couple Bible verses I wanted to get to. I may have to come back to those later. And this is really underneath point number three, the Father predestined us to adoption. And what we see is that adoption really is a byproduct of salvation. It's a byproduct of salvation. In fact, John 1.12 tells us this. Go ahead and show John 1.12. I believe I have it up there. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. So when we believe in the name of Jesus, we've accepted for salvation, we are born again. And because we are born again, we are adopted into the family of God. We go from the family of darkness into the family of light. We follow the Lord. We go into the family of God. Adoption's a byproduct of salvation. And so what we see in Romans 8, 28 and 29 and actually 30, is that, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Notice it says those who love God, not just for anybody, but those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. (coughs) For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover, Whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. We are predestined as believers in Christ. If you're wondering, God, what are you doing in my life? He is making you and developing you more and more and to the image of his son, Jesus. That is what predestination actually has to deal with. If you're wondering, God, why am I going through some difficulty? He'll use the good, he'll use the bad for the purpose of making you more like his son, Jesus Christ. He's not done with you. He'll continue. Now, I wish I could get into more of this, but we will next week. And I even skipped a couple passages here that happens sometimes that I wanted to get into. I'll end with this. Is that, do you know Christ as your Savior? Heaven is real. Hell is real. And you have a decision to make whether to accept or to reject Jesus Christ. You get this one life, you get this one time, Now, maybe you're watching or maybe you're here and you go, you know what? I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in a hell. You may not, you may even say to yourself, I don't even believe in God. Are you sure? Are you sure you're right? Not just what you're feeling, but have you really dug in and investigated the truth? Not just hearsay, 
Not just what you watched on Instagram or TikTok and you go and you heard a a 60 second clip of someone who was aggravated and they tried to prove a point, usually poorly. Maybe you just didn't know enough or investigate enough to know the difference. God loves you. And even if you don't believe in him, He's not done pursuing you as long as you have breath. Christian, you have not arrived. If you are breathing, you are still in the sanctification process. He's making you more and more like his son Jesus. And will continue to do so until... This body dies and we are glorified and we stand before the Lord. Some, having been in church, can easily think, you know what? I learned what I needed to learn when I was a kid or as a teenager. You once were on fire for the Lord, but you stopped doing the things spiritually, the spiritual things that made you on fire for the Lord. That's why you're not on fire for Him any longer. And just to make it simple, if you want to be on fire for the Lord again, to let the Holy Spirit work in your life, do the things that you once did. Dive back into his word. Study his word. Seek his face. Love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. Let him guide your steps. And maybe spiritually speaking, maybe you've been a Saul, you've been bullheaded. You just want to do things your own way. Maybe now it's time to go, God, it's time for a change. It's time for me to repent of that. It's time for me to make some things right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we have this time of reflection. Father, What a beautiful word that you are our Father. That you love us, you care for us, you're patient with us. And Lord, I I pray that anyone here this morning who is far from you, that they'll run to you. Anyone here that doesn't belong to you because they've never given their life to Christ, that they will run to you. That they will repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. They won't wait. They won't hesitate. They will will do it. And as we live in a world that is becoming more and more like Ephesus, I pray that we will have the boldness to share Christ. The boldness to raise our families differently. The boldness to be the light and salt 
wherever you put us, wherever you lead us. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for who you are. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.